STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Emlyn Gremlin, or Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. I always forget about <laughs> that. I know, right? I mean, I haven't received my diploma yet, but I'm still <laughs> going to use it. Yeah, no, me either. Uh, and I'm Dr. I almost said Emlyn Gremlin. <laughs> you can't do that. that. I'm Dr. Emma Dilemma. Be your I'll own be woman. Problems. I'm always causing problems. <laughs> Uh, uh yeah here we are here we back, are back in i was gonna say back in the studio but neither of us are in a studio well no i i had to bike here from work like right before and so i'm in my c- tiny closet just sweating oh my in my own gosh. juices just Ugh. i'm i'm <laughs> marinating ew uh-huh i'm turning into I'm so ceviche sorry. it's okay Ooh, I do like ceviche. Mm, I don't think you'd like gremlin this ceviche. No, no, I wouldn't. No. You. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna. All I'm right. just like flapping my uh my arms like a chicken to try to cool down. <laughs> I'm sweating, but I have no excuse. Okay, <laughs> I have a question for you as from usual, me as usual. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. The question is, do you use GenBank? I have, yeah. Do you want to describe what GenBank is? There's a lot of things, but uh, I've used it to, you can like line up sequences with it. You can search for, like if you have a sequence of DNA, you can put it in a search bar and it shows you like what organisms and what genes and what other sequences it matches to, right? Yeah, yeah, it's this big repository um, of sequences, both, I think it has both uh, DNA sequences and also like amino acid protein sequences that you can search through and Mm -hmm. do comparisons and compile and all that good stuff. This is an advertisement for Jenny. (laughs) Exactly. And And it does all this stuff with genes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. We're actually getting yeah. funded this week by GenBank. Yeah. Yeah. No, right. we're not. No one funds us. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so this week I'm going to be talking about a woman who's been called the mother and father <laughs> of the field of bioinformatics. Whoa. Okay. I'm intrigued. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think she's just like she couldn't be just one parent she had to be both i think that's how important she is to the field of bioinformatics she is mother she is father she is father mm-hmm. okay i'm ready i think strap this is very bond 2019 so far <laughs> yeah okay let's do it <laughs> okay her name is margaret oakley dayhoff Oh, okay. This is who um, Julia told us to look up, right? Yeah, yeah. So shout out goes to um, one of our friends, Julia York, who herself is a badass lady scientist. Oh, um, hell yeah. Who studies ion channels of Antarctic fish, 
Um, and yeah, she studies cool. uh, how these fish sense and respond to cold temperatures in the Antarctic. So shout out to her for giving us this suggestion. We love when people yeah. tell us who to talk about. It makes our lives so much easier. So much easier. If you aren't familiar with the field of bioinformatics, it's the scientific discipline that combines biology, computer science, information engineering, mathematics, and statistics, all to analyze and interpret biological data, especially sequence data and protein sequence data. Yep. Yep. So many good things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. So Margaret Oakley, as she was born... Uh, was born. I don't know why I said it that way. Margaret Oakley was born on. As she was as, born, I've never... as, <laughs> as she, we live and breathe. Um, Mar- Margaret Oakley was born on March eleventh, nineteen twenty-five, in Philadelphia, and Ooh. her parents moved her to New York City when she was ten. And that's all the information I have about that. Wow. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then she went to Bayside High School in Bayside. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what state? New York. I think it's right outside of New York. Okay, okay. Um, Is that, wasn't there like a children's book series, Bayside something? Do you remember that? Like at the Bayside or by the Bayside or like the Bayside kids? Oh crap, this is gonna bother you, me. I, do you mean the um Wayside maybe? There's the the kids that are in that metal box. <laughs> no, not them. Do you know wait, what is that <laughs> called? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh my about? god, we're probably driving a bunch of people crazy. Neither of us can remember the names of anything today. Oh, those were like the the box kids. The box car? Bo- box street? Box car children. Okay. Yeah. No, not them. <laughs> this is like Bayside High School or something. No, I don't know. No. It's lost okay. on me. I'll figure it out. Listeners, tell us. Or don't. Yeah, shout it at us through your phones mm-hmm. and we'll respond somehow. Maybe it was Wayside. I don't know. We gotta, we gotta keep going. Cares. No one cares. <laughs> we care. Okay. Um, yeah. But, tell me more about Margaret Dale. <laughs> okay. She, at Bayside High School, this elusive uh-huh. high school, uh, <laughs> she was valedictorian in 1942 and then received a scholarship to study in Washington Square College in at, at NYU. Wow. Cool. And... She graduated from college in mathematics in three years, and she graduated magnum cum laude. So this is, she's a smart oh cookie, gosh. and she is yeah. going fast through this education system. Good for her. Why get not? Get in, get out. Get in, get out. Get on with your life. <laughs> it's an in and out situation, as I always say. <laughs> yeah, as you always say. So although... We joke on this podcast quite a bit about how good World War II was for women in science. Um, after it's World, it's true. It is, yeah, it's absolutely it's true. true. Unfortunately, yeah. after World War II, in some disciplines, um, as men began re-entering the sciences, the number of the percentage of women and the number of women that were in these fields declined again. Right. So the already male-dominated field of chemistry went from 8% women during World War II to 5% women after World War II. 
Yeah. But Margaret, against all odds, began her PhD in quantum chemistry with um, George Kimball at Columbia University. Shout out, Columbia. Yeah, Columbia. Educating a lot of women in science at that time. Sometimes not doing a good job of it. <laughs> Wait, oh, are there's just... just about to hear. No, okay. no. Uh, I Uh-oh. was thinking of. Darn it, we are so bad with names. I was thinking of the woman who worked with a Colombian professor because he was both racist and sexist. Oh yes, uh, Mamie Phipps Clark. Mamie Phipps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, right. George Kimball seems great. He was, at this time, a chemist and a World War II operations researcher. Oh, wow. And during World War II, Columbia had become this hotbed of computing technology and had some of the first computer laboratories, such as the IBM Watson Scientific Laboratory at Columbia. Oh, cool. Very cool. And so this kind of set the stage for Margaret to be able to use this technology readily And she devised a method of utilizing these early punch card data processors that we talk a little bit about in previous episodes. Um, So she devised a way to use these punch card data processors to do chemistry calculations uh, way faster than you would be able to by hand. And after only three years, probably because she sped up her dissertation quite a bit. She received her PhD. Three years? Oh I know. I'm telling you, she is lickety split. She's fast. She's fast. She's lickety split. <laughs> there she goes. There she goes. <laughs> and she authored a publication based on her dissertation entitled Punch Card Calculations of Resonance Energies. Cool. Wow. And this work, in essence, pioneered the use of computers to theoretical chemistry. So she was really the first one to apply computers to solving Ah, um, questions in chemistry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, a little personal information. Um, Around the time that she got her PhD, she also married an experimental physics student who she'd met at Columbia who... Oh, his name's Edward. I forgot. I had (laughs) not, not put it down. His name is Edward. Not important. Edward Dayoff. As you might guess. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I wonder what happens with their relationship. (laughs) Due to her, this innovation of applying computers to answer chemical chemistry questions, she received a Watson Computing Laboratory Fellowship where she received access to these cutting edge IBM data processors. So even more up to date than the ones that she had access to at Columbia. Oh, wow. So she's on the the cutting edge. She's riding the wave of life. As we all should be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with this fellowship that she got, Dayhoff studied electrochemistry, which is the study of the relationship between electricity and chemical changes. Um, And she studied this at the Rockefeller Institute from 1948 to 1951. Then... In 1952, Margaret and Edward moved to Maryland, where her husband, Edward, began working Uh at the National Bureau of Standards, and she gave birth to two daughters during this time. Twins? Oh, wait. No, this is just during the time. Just during the time. Not twins. 
Over the next eight years while they're in Maryland, Margaret primarily focused on raising her two daughters. But somewhere, I couldn't figure out when, but somewhere during this eight period of time, she did a two-year postdoc at the University of Maryland to work on a model of chemical bonding using a high-speed IBM computer. Oh my gosh. How did they even do that at that time? So, okay, the computers were just doing calculations for them. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. No, no, no. I answered my own question. I asked a stupid question. <laughs> How do they do it? it? Oh, do they do it by calculating things? The yes. computer, yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's interesting that she, and this isn't infrequent, she took eight years off to raise her kids. And I don't know how much of that was. There's really actually not very many sources on Margaret Dayhoff for how important she is as per usual. But I couldn't figure out, you know, whether or not she couldn't find a job, whether she wanted to take that time off to raise her kids. Um, It's hard to know kind of her motivations during that time. I wonder if she worked at home at all or just sort of I don't know you know or maybe she really just took on you know that more homemaker role for a few years because that was pretty normal for that time yeah so it's unclear but um once her daughters got a bit older in 1960 she returned to active science um and from what I heard, from what I read, there seems to be a bit of a transition period where she found it a bit difficult to get back in to the sciences. So NIH rejected okay. a grant application of hers on the basis that she had become out of touch with advanced computing uh, capabilities because they were changing so fast. She was no longer on that wave. She was in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh my gosh great metaphor yeah I like it yeah. a lot <laughs> luckily a biophysicist Robert Ledley pulled her out pulled her out from the deep end <laughs> he threw her a lifesaver yeah got her a fancy new thing you ride on the waves what are those what? surfboard <laughs> surfboard <laughs> God, I am like, so out of it. Words today. I cannot with words. He, Robert Ledley, threw her her own surfboard. She got up on it, just <laughs> popped up, and then rode down and was the first one to make it to the beach. This is a metaphor yeah. of what happened. Okay, cool. I love it. Going forward. And, and then there were no great whites waiting for her. Hopefully. No, there were not. Uh, okay so robert ledley i will robert ledley uh he was a dentist turned physicist as often is the case and she had met him through her (laughs) husband previously so often i just like it took me a second i was like oh i guess so and then i was like wait a second i've never like oh yeah it makes sense we're really spacey today i know it's cool uh But he had met her husband previously and had then asked her to join the National Biomedical Research Foundation in 1960 as an associate director. Uh, And this was a position she would then hold for the next 21 years. Oh, my gosh. 
Yeah, so this was the break she needed. This was... Totally. She was a lifetime surfer after this. So Ledley... She had abs of steel. She had abs of steel. So Ledley knew that Margaret's computing skills and her dissertation and the work she had done previously were was crucial for combining biology, computing, and medicine together. So he knew she was the perfect nice. person to help him and to work at this National Biomedical Research Foundation. Yeah, totally. Yeah. At the time, they were both interested in applying these newfangled computational resources to biomedical problems. Together, they published a paper, paper entitled um, COM Protein, a computer program to aid primary protein structure determination using oh, a new cool. IBM uh, model computer that was at Georgetown University. Wow. And the, were these like still the really giant computers? Yes. Yeah. The like wow. ones that took up yeah. a whole room. Right. They wanted to get more biologists and more chemists involved, more like life mm-hmm. life science uh, professors using computers. And there was a big uh, reticence. People were not interested in using computational methods in, in biology at that time. I mean, yeah, if it's not your expertise... It yeah. can be kind of daunting, mm-hmm. right? If you're like, I like growing things in petri dishes or wandering around outside, you're yeah. like, it can be a little. But if you, someone else wants to do it for you, then why not just, you know, try to collaborate? Well, she transitioned to starting to work on astronomy and space because they were much more interested in using computers. Right. That kind of makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. So during the 1960s, obviously, America's transfixed by space exploration, mm-hmm. gain of the Cold War. We're right. going to space. We're doing all the space stuff. Totally. And at the University of Maryland, Margaret was brought into a six-year collaboration with some astronomers uh, and physicists, Ellis Lippincott and Carl Sagan. If you've oh, heard of cool. him. Nah. Nah. No, just kidding. I have. Yeah. <laughs> and together they cool. developed models of atmospheric compositions of the cosmos. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they were trying to get a sense of what atmospheres were made up of in various different planets. So she developed oh. a computational program that could calculate equilibrium concentrations of gases in planetary atmospheres such as Venus, Jupiter, and Mars. And using this program, the three of them were able to develop atmospheric models of these planets and to consider whether the primordial atmosphere, so what, what would you consider the primor- like primordial, like before life? Is that what that means? Like yeah, on Earth just... before any life? Right. Like the atmosphere. Just lots of elements mm-hmm. of fire, I'm guessing, or cold or something like that. So they could consider whether the primordial atmosphere held the conditions needed to generate life on Earth. So oh, some big awesome. questions that she was yeah, involved in. seriously. But then she went back to proteins and chemistry. <laughs> her true her true love. So yeah. in nineteen Yeah. So in nineteen sixty six Dayoff pioneered the use of computers to compare protein sequences and reconstruct evolutionary histories 
from sequence alignments. So uh, in order to do this, she created a single letter amino acid code. So if you remember, like in order to use these computers, you had to punch out everything. So what she did was we have 26 amino acids and she's the one that created the um, the three letter and one letter codes for each amino acid. Yeah, I know. Yeah, like A, K. Exactly. Oh my god. I literally was just about to start listing letters, which is like <laughs> stupid. Hey, go ahead. Tell me some other thinking, ones. But I was like thinking in my mind, like I've, I like of looking at a protein sequence and it's the letters. That, oh my gosh. But I realized like, <laughs> duh. It's just a sequence of letters. I don't know what's. I can't even explain what I'm thinking. It's okay. <laughs> oh my god. Go on. Okay. Please go on. <laughs> Get me out of this hole. <laughs> um. So yeah. So she created these single letter amino acid codes so that it would minimize the amount of data and the amount of punches she would have to do on these cards. Yeah, um, and also just shorten the sequences of right. amino acids. So they decided to look at the same protein across different species. And this allowed them to observe that parts of these protein sequences were identical between species. And so these segments were likely crucial for the function of the protein and were thus conserved. So yeah, you line up a bunch of protein sequences that all code for the same protein in different species. And you imagine that the parts that stay the same are things that are very important to the functioning of that protein. So she was uh, the first one that looked at comparing sequences across species. Wow, I never knew that. Mm -hmm. Hold on to your britches. (laughs) I'll go get them. I like, I'm just so out of it. Uh, I don't know. I gotta go surfing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you could. You're going to Hawaii. I know. I will not go surfing because I did it once and I just got full body really rash. Hard. Yeah. I'm very, mm-hmm. very, very bad at it. It's really hard. And if there's rocks, like, <laughs> forget about it. Yeah. You're just going to cut yourself up. <laughs> no. <laughs> I might, I'm might. i a snorkel. Yeah. Totally Safely snorkel. Better. Yeah. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. All right. So these um, comparing protein sequences between species led to Margaret being able to look at a protein shared history between these species. So essentially you could take different, you could line up all of these protein sequences and then look at differences between the species. And this would help you infer evolutionary distances between these different species and reconstruct phylogenetic trees using these protein sequences. Do you know, like, what species she was looking at or anything? Or was it just kind of all species? She was looking through a bunch of stuff. I think it was at a very wide taxonomic scale. So she was looking at, like, you know, apes and plants or, like, you know, that kind of resolution was what she was assessing, you know, phylogenetic history. But I don't okay. know if there's specific taxa that she focused on. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So she did some of this work with Richard Eck, uh, and it was the first use of 
com- of computers to infer phylogenies using molecular sequences. Right. That's really cool. Yeah. So in a 1969 Scientific American article, she wrote, quote, each protein sequence that is established, each evolutionary mechanism that is illuminated, each major innovation in phylogenetic history that is revealed will improve our understanding of the history of life. And she wrote this in part because she was trying to convince life science um, faculty and researchers that there was great potential for computerized models to help explain uh-huh. life. And they were still like, she was still having trouble getting people interested in this. Yeah. So this was her like great plea. Yeah. It's a pretty big jump for a lot of life scientists, I mm-hmm. think. Like, yeah. Not really computer people necessarily, mm-hmm. at least a while ago. Yeah. So, yeah. That's interesting. So, One of her most important contributions to bioinformatics was a book entitled The Atlas of Protein Sequence and Structure. Wow. Which she published in 1965. That's so cool. This book reported all known protein sequences at the time. So that was only 65. But she had to go, like, this was extremely difficult work because she had to scan through article journals one by one in library collections like, you couldn't oh Google gosh. search protein sequence. You had to go through each individual journal oh and look for right. them and then, you know, catalog them. So this took quite a long, but she was able to get all 65. Wow. And many scientists considered that this cataloging was kind of old-fashioned, and they didn't really see the big picture of what having all of these protein sequences together would really mean. Huh. Okay. So, according to a biographer of her, who is named Stasser, they say she contributed to a field that did not exist and thus had no professional recognition. So, people didn't quite understand what she was doing because it just wasn't a thing at that time. She was merging a bunch of fields. Too Mm -hmm. cutting edge. She was cutting those waves. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Good. Bring it back. I will uh, always gotta bring it back. Yeah, mm-hmm. with her washboard abs. I really Love want it. Caitlin to make some art that's just her on a <sighs> surfboard with like ripped abs. I don't know how appropriate that is, but yeah, probably not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I can want what I want though. That'll just be for my well, she eyes. Can make it for you. Yeah, you can, okay. yeah. <laughs> if she wants to. So this book, The Atlas, um, has been cited over 4,500 times. Wow. If that gives you a sense of how important this is. Oh, my gosh. This book led to a database of protein sequences, which was the first Uh online database of its kind. Uh And this is at the point where you had to call to by telephone to access this data. Like, people didn't have computers, so you could, like, call... And somehow it would, like, give you a sequence. That's... <laughs> I don't quite understand how it worked back then. I don't... Uh, computers are so confusing and, like, online. I know. We're not going to get into it. I know. Um, uh. But also r- other remote computers could access this database. Mm. So her work, combined by work of another researcher uh, named Walter Goad led to the creation of the GenBank database of nucleic acids and all kind of subsequent modern databases of molecular sequences. 
Damn. I know. That's really cool. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm going to keep going. I'm ready. So her Atlas book also organized proteins into gene families based on similarities. So this is the first use of the term like gene family. Oh, that's awesome. Um, For instance, you know, she could look at insulin in a bunch of different species Mm -hmm. and then align them based on how similar their protein sequences were. Wow. So these differences in protein sequences were later used to more specifically to code common ancestry and mm-hmm. um, between species by uh, Linus Pauling. So he utilized these protein sequences that she had collected. Oh, man. Dayoff's Atlas book became an indispensable tool for a lot of DNA and protein-related biomedical research, as you probably would be able to guess. Now, despite this, yeah. mm-hmm. Dayhoff was marginalized from the science community of sequencers. Oh. There was a contract to manage GenBank, um, which was that technology directly related to what she'd been working on her whole life. Uh-huh. Um, and it was awarded to Walter Goad uh, instead of her. So that was the other person who contributed. But it's not right. clear why he was awarded yeah. uh, the ability to like con- to manage GenBank rather than her. Um, or why they didn't get to do it together. Yeah. Some believe that it's due to sexism um, or a clash Mm -hmm. of values with the experimental science community, but there's really not enough information to say what the reason is. Yeah. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. And then during her last years of life, she focused her attention on getting long-term funding to maintain... This other database, this protein information resource database that she had worked on. Okay. So a few days before her death in 1983, she submitted a proposal to NIH for this purpose. Uh, And after her death, colleagues worked to make her vision a reality. And the protein information resource is still going. And it's located at Georgetown University Medical Center and is an uh, integrated public bioinformatics resource to support genomic and uh, proteomic research. Oh my gosh, I'd never heard of that. Yeah, so I don't think. Yeah, I don't work with proteins, but apparently, also while in Maryland, she worked at Georgetown University Medical Center and taught classes for oh, thirteen that's years. Cool. I don't know when oh this gosh. happened, but um, <laughs> yeah. So she also did a lot of teaching during this time. And she served as an American Associate for the Advancement of Science, uh, AAAS Fellow, and was elected Counselor of the International Society for the Study of the Origins of Life in 1980. Wow, so it seems like, I mean, it seems like people knew of her and her time and everything, but I just wonder why she was kind of, like, forgotten for, I mean, I guess she died, or she was still working in the 80s, but... yeah. Yeah, I don't know why her name isn't used more today, or why I haven't yeah. heard of it until recently. I know. Before, like, during the early days and, like, years of computing, a lot of those jobs were given to women, or women were advancing in those fields. But as soon as it became right. more established and had um, a lot of, like, weight and credence to it... Ah, right. Then women kind of got pushed out or weren't taken as seriously once it became, Mm -hmm. you know, an actual discipline. 
Yeah, I kind of remember reading about that with mm-hmm. some of our other ladies. Yep. Yeah. So, so that's my story about Margaret Dayhoff, who is the mother and the father of bioinformatics and uh, kind of the originator of things like GenBank and yeah other online totally sequence databases. That's really cool. I didn't even realize like bioinformatics or computational bio went back quite as far as it did mm-hmm. yeah that's really yeah i don't cool. know when they started using the term bioinformatics right yeah yeah for a while she was working mostly when it wasn't a field exactly, and so there was really no yeah. term for what she was doing that's really cool wow yeah that's awesome i like her yeah she's great so i also want to give a shout out one of the resources that i got a lot of information for this was by um Layla McNeil, who is one oh, of the yeah. head writers and like organizers of Lady Science uh, magazine that does a lot of kind of work illuminating feminist issues in science. Um, yeah. And it's re- a really good history science magazine and some good, you know, really good writing. She's done a number of articles on kind of forgotten women in right. science. Yep. And so she's been like, I keep seeing her name. I'll be like, this is a really good article. This yeah. is a great resource. And I'll be like, oh, Layla. Yeah, I know. Um, that happens to me a lot, too. Yeah, I think she's a science historian researcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So she finds out a lot of information and writes really nice uh, articles about it. I think even like for other websites too like smithsonian is it yeah yeah Yeah. this this article was on the smithsonian right yeah Mm -hmm. so cool yeah but yeah so just shout out to her because she's helped um make it possible to do a couple episodes Mm -hmm. so far that there wasn't as much readily available information for me as yeah i kind of need because i'm not going to go into as deep as you would if you're going to write yeah an article like she is because i just don't have time it's not my main focus but so yeah. shout out to her cool a little pre-women yeah a, a, a pre-shout out shout out <laughs> mm-hmm. a transition shout out to your shout out <laughs> well that's actually good because my shout out's kind of like uh different i mean it's like different than our use <laughs> okay <laughs> not bad in a bad way but it's just sort of like a different category <laughs> Whatever. Let's just. I'm intrigued. You're just teasing me. <laughs> Let's start the segment. Work, 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 work. This is our women who work segment where we give uh, shout outs to ladies making history today. Woo. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So I was googling around for something to shout out, and I found mm-hmm. out that the Hugo Awards were this week. Do you know what those are? <laughs> no. By any chance? Okay. I don't. They are a set of literary awards voted on by members of the current World Science Fiction Convention. (laughs) Oh, World Science Fiction Convention? Yeah, and they're basically... So the Hugo Awards, I think, are basically the biggest award ceremony or uh, given for science fiction and fantasy writing. Like in the science world. fiction, yeah. I was, that's why I said it's. A I wasn't putting those words together. I love it. <laughs> but I thought some of our 
listeners might be interested in some yeah. of the winners of these awards because their books sound really cool. Uh, or their writing sounds really cool. Okay, so this year, especially, a ton of women won Hugo Awards. Nice. And uh, won some of the top awards at the Hugo Awards. So um, some of these women... So, for instance, Best Novel was given to Mary Robinette Kowal for The Calculating Stars. Best Novella was given to Martha Wells for her... Um, uh, book Artificial Condition and Best Novelette was given to Zen Cho for If at First You Don't Succeed Try, Try Again Um, and it honestly looking down the list of award winners it's almost all women which is really really cool I love that yeah I don't always think of science fiction as like you know a very um, women dominated yeah yeah but Apparently it is, and they're winning awards and doing really well. Um, awesome. Becky Chambers won for Best Series, Wayfarers. I mean, it just is, goes on and on. I'll post a list of all the winners. Um, awesome. That's great. Yeah. I need more books. Yeah, me too. And I, I wa- I've always wanted to get into science fiction more, but just never quite, I don't know, had the time or, or found the right in, I guess. Yeah. I'm slowly um, reading Annihilation. Which oh, I'm enjoying. cool! That's nice. yeah. I've heard that's I'm, really good. I'm just bad at reading at night, so yeah, I fall asleep. I read like four pages and then I'm asleep. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter how interesting it is. Audiobook could work though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, awesome. I uh, just wanted to give those ladies a shout out. Kind of different shout out than usual, but um, yeah, sounds really cool. Some of their stuff. Spread the love. Yeah. Yeah, that's my shout out. Awesome. That's great. I will have to check some of that stuff out. Maybe it'll, it'll be a good like beach read for my trip. Oh, yeah, totally. On my Kindle. Some of them sound really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> now, <laughs> this. We're so awkward. We are, we have, we have ridden the wave to the shore and now we are off of our surfboard and our episode is over. <laughs> and and we are <laughs> lying on the beach panting but also mm-hmm. feeling good like we just got in a good workout like we're tired but yeah. it was a good workout <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sweat glistening off our brows <laughs> yeah and a salty hair from the ocean water yes yes so thank you for listening <laughs> i hope this inspires you to go to the beach go to any beach near you it's summertime summer's almost over go to the beach Read uh, The Calculating Stars by Mary Kowal, and have a good summer. (laughs) I like that this is like, have a good summer, and the summer's like pretty much over. Enjoy the last dregs of summer. Yeah. Um, Please rate, review, subscribe if you (laughs) still are listening after all this BS. Um... Thank you to Artichoke for our theme mm-hmm. song and to Caitlin Friesen for our beautiful, the beautiful artwork that she's been creating since the uh, beginning of our pod. And uh, as usual, go stimulate yourself. yourself. By circa 1820, she ran